0: the Kixology Podcast, a show all about running shoes. My name is Brian Metzler, your host and resident running shoe geek. I'm also the author of Kixology, a book about the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes. In this episode, I am joined by Tony Post, the founder and CEO of Topo Athletics, a footwear brand founded on the principles of natural running. We talk about how Tony has grown Topo from scratch, his interesting background in the footwear industry, and where he thinks running shoes are heading in the future. Thanks for tuning in. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, so Tony Post, you're with... uh... Topo Athletic, a brand you founded in, in 2013. And we'll get into the details of that. But I think that uh, what i like to know from all people I talk to in the shoe industry, whether it's a designer or an executive or even an athlete, um, kind of what your first impressions were of, of running shoes. I mean, maybe I, I know you were a, a good high school runner, a good college runner. Take us back what was your first running shoe? What do you first remember about running shoes?
1: So actually, I didn't, I didn't really run in high school. I did a lot of other sports. I was a skier. I was a golfer. I played a lot of team sports, football and basketball. Um, and I, uh, I didn't start running until I got to college. I went to University of Tulsa. I went on a partial golf scholarship. And Tulsa had a good golf team at the time. And my roommate uh, was a track athlete and a runner. And so he was the one that kind of got me interested in running. And so I didn't really run in high school. I started uh, running just for fitness my freshman year in college. Um, That's pretty interesting. So
0: so obviously you had a different path than I thought. I assumed that because you became a 29 something 10 K runner, you obviously had run before that, but it's it's interesting you you approached it from that point of view.
1: Yeah. I, I, um, you know, I, I fell into it pretty naturally and I really enjoyed it. So, um, you know, it was it was fun once I started to get into it i um I ran uh intramural track and ran the mile and and the two mile and did pretty well in those and then uh he encouraged me to go out for an a a u track meet this was you know probably about a year a year and a half later and I had since been cut from the golf team, so I was <laughs> definitely looking for a way to pay for school. But I didn't think I would, you know, get a, a track scholarship or or anything like that. But I ended up going to this AAU meet, and and uh, it was a hot day in Tulsa, and I ran a four twenty four and won the race, which isn't a very fast time. But you know, the track coach was there. He said, you know, I think you have some some talent. I think you should come out for the track team. And, um, he said, I don't necessarily see you as a, a miler, but I think you could do well in the 5k and maybe the 10k, you know, um, we don't run a lot of 10ks, but, you know, certainly run the 5k. So, so they offered me um, a scholarship and that's how I started running. You know, it was just kind of as a thing that I enjoyed, but also a way to pay for school.
0: That's pretty cool. And I imagine back then you were running in probably some, some obviously classic, uh, uh, running shoes of the day, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, um, cause people may not realize how old I am. So this is like the, this is the late seventies and my dad had given me an old pair of tigers. I don't know if you, you know, remember those, but, oh, for um, sure. like Tiger,
0: Tiger, Tiger Jayhawks or what were they? Yeah,
1: yeah I think it was a, it was a, I think it was a Tiger Jayhawk. It was like that same shoe that you used to see on the cover of the Jim Fix book. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was using those, and then our school had a a deal with a company called Miter, which I had never even heard of. Oh
0: right, right, right. And
1: so we we trained in Miter, and then ran in Miter track spikes. Um, and so, uh, but I was I. I was just discovering running shoes, you know, in those early days. And so I would save my money and occasionally buy a pair of New Balance 320s. I remember I had those. And and as I got into running, you know, like a lot of people, probably in the late 70s, early 80s, got fascinated with Steve Prefontaine, which, you know, kind of took me to Nike. And I became a, a Nike fan, you know, probably pretty early.
0: Sure, and the Nike Air Tailwind came out in I think 1979. So the first you know real kind of technology boost of of a shoe with that you know the air insole instead of just foam. Obviously, that that set up a whole revolution, and that's kind of when your formative years of running were happening.
1: Yeah, I I had that shoe too. I had three pairs of Tailwinds, and because they kept falling apart, Nike was good enough to yeah they were good enough to you know keep sending me more shoes and and uh, but you know that was, yeah, that was kind of a core trainer. And then, probably shortly after that, I got into Pegasus, and you know, these were early generations of Pegasus before it had air or anything in in the shoe and um and then I was racing in Nike Eagles. I don't know if you remember that oh, shoe, yeah. so
0: yeah. I, I had a pair of American eagles. I think, I think the the eagle was yeah. uh, black and gray, right, and the, the American Eagle was red, white and blue,
1: yeah, yeah, I had yeah. both, actually, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, I went from there to the Spiriton, which I was a, uh, which is kind of a gold and red and white kind of shoe, which I loved.
1: Yeah. Now here's um, the what, kind of an interesting side note. So okay. if you can imagine back then, you know, our coach used to encourage us to have shoes that were really form fitting. So I'm a size 11 today, and I used to race and do my track workouts in size nine and a half, oh. which was absolutely awful. Like I couldn't wait to get the shoes off. But um, that shows you how much the world has changed and, you know, maybe gives you a little indication about why I was so passionate about doing Topo.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I, th- I think back then, I mean, I, I had a sim- similar experience. I mean, we, we, for sure, our spikes were smaller. And um, I think that some of my racing flats were too. But my, my question to you that is like, how do your toenails look now? Because I know that has a long term <laughs> impact on uh, toenails.
1: Well, you know, and I was probably kind of used to it because as a skier, I was a ski racer in high school. And we also wore our boots kind of small too. So right. I don't know what it was about those days that, you know, people thought that if your equipment was super tight on your on your body, it made you a better athlete or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, my feet suffered as a consequence for sure.
0: Absolutely. That's that's actually a good transition. I think that like with the exception of maybe, you know, um, ballet dancers, which I, I can't speak to as an expert, I think that, yeah, I mean, a lot of people like everything was smaller. My dad played minor league baseball and he, uh, he always said, you know, his feet were so terrible because he wore spikes, baseball spikes, like two sizes smaller. Right. I mean, like, I don't know what that mentality was, but maybe they didn't have the technology to create a truly uh, acceptable shoe for your foot and how it needed to move, right? I mean, maybe just smaller seemed more dynamic. I don't know.
1: I don't know, but I I think we learned a lot since then, fortunately. So hopefully people, there aren't very many people out there doing that again today, but you're right. It was common a long time ago that, you know, that's kind of how, that's how we bought our equipment or used our equipment
0: yep yep and that's like i said it's a good transition i mean obviously topo the brand you started in 2013 one of the tenets of the design is that they have a more natural design for the foot to uh, be able to move and flex and um, i know uh, generally lower drop heel toe drop and uh, slightly Mm -hmm. wider toe box i mean i guess tell me kind of how how uh, we'll get into your background in a second but certainly how topo made sense because obviously it did because you've reached success in the last seven years um but but how how did that understanding, maybe from your, your your way back experiences to, to starting Topo really kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah, it was a long, this, this is a long transformation. And so I'm not going to take everybody through, you know, all the details of that. But um, when I moved to New England, so I came to New England to train with better runners, you know, having run in college, I did, you know, reasonably well in college, but I, you know, I needed to be around, better runners. There were at the time, probably three places you could go. You could go to, uh, I could go back to Colorado. I grew up in Colorado. You could go back to Boulder because Frank Shorter was kind of building a group of people in that area. You could go out to uh, Eugene, Oregon. And there were a lot of people that were, you know, kind of training in in pre-shadow that continued that tradition. Uh, But my girlfriend, who's been my wife for the last 30 plus years, Um, was from the Boston area. And so she convinced me that, you know, to come to Boston. Of course, Bill Rogers, you know, Bobby Hodge, Greg Meyer, lots of really good runners out in this area. All those legends. Um, Yeah. yeah, You know, way, way better than I, you know, ever was. I was a reasonable uh, regional runner, but these guys were, you know, truly world class, amazing. And I just wanted to be around it. And so when I got here, I wasn't, you know, I was, I needed to find a way to make a living and I'd, Always, you know, kind of worked in the restaurant business off and on through college. But um, I did some of that until I found uh, a job at a company that Bill Rogers was actually a spokesperson for. It was a company that made casual shoes with athletic shoe technology, and that was Rockport.
0: Yeah, I, I, I remember I, the Bill Rogers posters.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, it was really cool because, um, you know, back in the early 80s, people were wearing running shoes kind of for the first time, you know, as their, as their casual shoes. And, and Rockport had ads that says, these are the shoes that Bill wears when he's not working, because obviously he was, when he was working, he was in running shoes. And, and so I thought, wow, you know, brand good enough for Bill Rogers, that'd be a cool place to work. So, so I really didn't know anything about what I was getting into. But the reason that this leads into your original question about, you know, how did you start to get into the idea of, you know, making shoes that were maybe a little better for you or healthier, that transformation started for me when I went to work at Rockport. And Rockport was a company that was very focused on making shoes that were uh, lightweight, comfortable, not necessarily for, you know, sport, although we did make some product for, you know light hiking and trail running and, and some things like that, but but um, all of the shoes are built around this concept of you know healthy, comfortable um, footwear.
0: And and other things that you think you know that should be uh, part of the purpose of any company in footwear, right? But 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 surprisingly, was not back then.
1: Yeah, it really wasn't, and 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 it was very cool because you know I mean. Nike had a development facility in New England back then uh, up in Exeter, New Hampshire. And I had, um, you know, some friends and colleagues and I used to get some Nike equipment so I could go up there and see how that all worked. But then, um, you know, when I went to work at Rockport, it was totally different. It was old school, New England shoemaking, you know, really focused on crafting the shape of a last on craftsmanship of the footwear on different types of constructions on how materials work together. And it was really interesting for me to take kind of this athletic experience and then be able to combine it with this kind of, you know, maybe more old world craftsmanship that was you know, found in more traditional footwear. And, and that those things had a big influence on kind of how I approached footwear over the next, 30 plus years.
0: And we'll fast forward a little bit, but we'll get back to some of your other history. Uh, But so, uh, you know, starting Topo, obviously, at a time, 2013 was just beyond what maybe had been the peak of the zenith of the minimalist revolution, right? And then that we had somewhat of a maximal thing or a return to foam or whatever. But I I think you found um, a pretty happy medium in some respects based on some of the things you just said, you know, uh, healthy functional shoes that were lightweight, but also obviously, uh, had a, had a low drop. Um, maybe talk about that kind of how those all came into play as your key, um, design, uh, ideals that that are still present today.
1: Yeah. So, so I ended up just to kind of go back. I worked at Rockport for 15 years. I, I ended up running all of product and marketing there. I had great mentors, great teachers, you know, people who taught me a lot about the shoe industry, about product creation, product development, um, you know, learned how to work with different factories, worked with, you know, 30 factories around the world um, and really learned the shoe business. And, and it was a great education, very fortunate to have that experience. And the company grew from, you know, a little $30 million company when I started to a $500 million company by the time I left Rockport. And was acquired by Reebok along the way. And so, you know, that introduced me to some, some other people in the industry and whatnot. But, but between Rockport and Topo, a lot of people know this part of the story. I ended up going to work for Vibram. And so um, Vibram is a company, of course, that makes soles for a lot of shoes and boots all over the world uh, and an Italian company. They wanted to start a U.S. subsidiary company. And so in 2001, I joined Vibram to start Vibram USA. And uh, it was focused exclusively on creating sole platforms for a whole bunch of different customers. Um, At the time, you know, people think that Vibram was everywhere. It actually wasn't. So we ended up starting relationships with um, brands like The North Face, uh, had a really great business with Merrill and a lot of the Wolverine brands. Uh, even at one point Nike had a brand called ACG, which you may remember all conditions. Right, right, right. So we were working with Nike. We had actually six platforms that we had designed and produced were creating for them. And so it was really fun. I got to, you know, see how all these different companies worked and and it was different being a supplier to a footwear company rather than, you know, running a finished product. Uh, but it was interesting because you could see, you know, different styles of how people organize their companies, how they work. Really a phenomenal education. I always felt like, though, that the Vibram brand was worth more than just souls. I thought that it could be something beyond souls. And so kind of through an interesting series of coincidences the the founder of the company or not the founder of the company, I'm sorry, that the owner of the company in Italy. Um, had started a little collection of shoes that he was just doing on the side called Just For Me. And he was curious, you know, as somebody who'd worked in the shoe industry for a long time, what I thought of them. And and he had a prototype of what was the original Debrim Five Fingers. And um, I said, well, you know, I, I think that's kind of an interesting model. And he's, we talked about it for a bit. And, and um, you know, he said, well, if you think you can do something with that in the U.S., let's do it. So we basically worked out a royalty agreement, um, kind of over the weekend, and I brought these weird, you know, prototypes back, and and we had people in our company who had finished product experience besides myself. So we ended up turning that into what became the Vibram Five Fingers business, and of course, that is why that was so relevant. So I go from this company, you know, Rockport, where I was making a lot of you know, light, comfortable, but more casual shoes. Some people may know we actually made a dress shoe that I ran marathons in, ran a 249, I story, yeah. and yep. ran a 249 marathon in London in a pair of dress shoes. Um, and then ended up, uh, you know, making these shoes now that were kind of the epitome of almost like a natural uh, barefoot shoe. And this is before anybody was really talking about the whole barefoot thing. Yeah, what year is, this? Um, is it
0: probably two thousand four, five, six somewhere there. Yeah,
1: so the original prototypes were two thousand four, and okay. then we launched we launched this concept at the two thousand five uh, summer outdoor retailer show.
0: I remember, uh, I remember being there. I remember seeing them, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if you showed them to me, but I remember seeing them, and I, I was kind of stunned. But but yeah, t- tell the story.
1: Well, it was fun because we had so so the first thing we had to do was since we had this idea to to launch this product into the market we you know we offered it to all of our customers so we showed it to brands like Merrill or you know Decker's group, which had Teva and Ugg and um the North Face and Rockport you know we showed it to all of our different customers and everybody thought it was really interesting but you know, nobody was interested in doing it. So we just wanted to make sure that we weren't going to be competing with our customers. So that was step one. And then once we did that, we we brought those original prototypes um, to a factory in China, a small factory that could, you know, make shoes uh, to our specifications and kind of modified the design a little bit. And, uh, did some things that we thought would improve the fit and function of that. But it was still very much, you know, true to the original concept, very much like a barefoot type shoe. And um, and brought them to that first trade show. Um, and, and then consequently, you know, tried to sell them over the next, um, you know, two or three months. And it was hard. I mean, that first year we only had, uh, I think, 24 dealers or 26 dealers to start, you know, people who were basically, uh, retail stores who were friends of mine who said, well, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try, but if it doesn't work, you, you'll take them back. Right. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of how we, we got started with that. And for me, the, you know, this was like coming full circle. So as a runner and somebody who had trained for a long time, you know my body was starting to feel a little beat up. I was suffering from some knee pain. Uh, I ended up having a knee surgery, arthroscopic surgery to uh, re- remove some meniscus, and and I was working out a lot in the gym and trying to regain strength. And an old Colorado friend of mine had said, "Have you ever tried to work out barefoot?" And uh, I said. That I hadn't, of course. And when I tried, my gym wouldn't let me because, you know, for a variety of reasons, probably health and safety and a lot of other reasons. And legal reasons, right? So, yeah, very, you know, very selfishly, I'm like, a month later, you know, I get shown this product and I'm saying, well, this is a shoe. I can wear this, but it's almost like being barefoot because now I can use my toes. My toes will all spread. I can use them for balance, control, agility. And I started using them in the gym. And these were, this is before we had launched the product. I just started using it in the gym as like my workout training shoe. And it was great because it was flat. I could feel everything. You know, I, I, it still had really good grip. Um, and and one day, just kind of, you know, I guess, I didn't feel like changing into my running shoes. I, you know, when I finished my lifting routine, a lot of times I'd go for like just a short four or five mile run. And I was going to go for this for a run. I thought, well, I'll just wear these. You know, I mean, I had run in, (laughs) I'd run a marathon in dress shoes. I could certainly go out for a three or four mile run in a pair of of five fingers. And when I did, what I noticed was it forced me to change my posture. So I immediately, instead of landing toward my heel, landed much more up toward the ball of my foot. I engaged the muscles in my feet much more in the, the medial arch. You know, I I mean, I couldn't really heel strike per se, but I wasn't landing up on my toes, but I had to try to land a little more softly and my posture became more upright. My stride shortened a little bit. I turned over a little quicker. All those things that you would hear about years later. And, and I thought, wow, this is really cool. And the big benefit was my knee didn't hurt. And so my knee that had been bothering me felt okay running in these shoes i thought how cool well you know we can launch this as kind of a shoe you could train in lift in but at, at the same time you know maybe use it as a as a training tool for your running and so that was kind of the original concept behind Ibram five fingers
0: it's a, it's a really cool story and i, I think that a couple things in there i think that one of the first i, I could be wrong. one of the first retailers to, to bring bring the shoes in was uh, runner's corner right in utah
1: yeah runner's corner so that's which which obviously was was, uh
0: hawk Hawk, Hawk harper but his kid golden harper and obviously his partner brian beck said were were the founders of ultra eventually but uh that's whole different story but obviously i think it what the the parallel there is obviously that there was this notion that this new product hit the market and maybe it wasn't understood entirely, but obviously, as you just described, there was a way to run better, right? I mean, that, that we all had been missing because of these hugely um, cushioned, especially in the heel, shoes, right? And that's what was that was changing how we ran.
1: I think it was a, a it was there was a cushioning, but it was even more than that, Brian, because you know this probably better than anybody. You know, people kept adding things to shoes. So if I think about shoes when I was you know, in the late seventies or even before that, you know, the shoes were quite simple, frankly. And, and people used to do a lot to strengthen their body or improve range of motion or to do other things to stay healthy. And then, and then as, The running shoe industry began to evolve, it became the running shoes responsibility to fix injury or to correct problems. And so that meant we kept bolting these different things onto shoes, you know, and adding more pieces and parts. And, and to me, it felt like it had gotten so overbuilt. So it wasn't just cushioning. It was like overbuilt kind of corrective. And I wanted to make something that would, if you stripped all that away, and but you know it doesn't mean you go out and run a marathon in these but if you strip it all away and you're forced to run and engage your body in a more natural way what would that be like and could right. you kind of build yourself up you know not you now the of course you know where this whole theory ran into some problems was as runners a lot of us you know we've got a race next month or we've got you know a set of goals that we want to achieve and so we don't want to back off of our mileage we don't want to um you know listen to our body when something hurts necessarily we you know, we think we can kind of push through it. And so a lot of people made the transition to product like a five fingers or other barefoot type footwear, and they transitioned very quickly. They used it a lot because it was kind of the, you know, this trendy thing that was happening. And I think a lot of people got injured and, and didn't allow their body time to, you know, to strengthen in a more natural way. And so you know, then it became, you know, the thing not to do. I guess,
0: right, um, right. No, that, that's you bring up some interesting points. I think, I think that maybe two thousand nine was the year of uh, the perfect storm, right? I think that if you if you look back in that, um, there were some there were some inklings of what was happening, and whether you call barefoot or natural running, obviously the Nike Free had been around for five years. I think mm-hmm. Newton Newton had launched a few years earlier. Obviously, Five Fingers were out, but what really did you yeah. know the biggest kind of um, explosion in the marketplace was obviously when chris mcdougall published born to run right and then there was a study yeah. in nature obviously and then and then many many headlines you know that 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 said everything from you know we as humans run more efficiently uh barefoot or with less shoe maybe or, but the other extreme it's like hey run barefoot it's better right and so it, it kind of was a firestorm of of maybe some some insights and some truths but also um essentialism that just like exploded and like all of a sudden people were running yeah. actually barefoot and also yeah. in five fingers and, and maybe yeah. yeah too much too soon and like my, my one interesting story is that that year in 2009 uh maybe October or November of that year I was running uh The Sears tower run, which is, I think it's called the Willis tower, but, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a run from the the bottom floor up to 110 floors or whatever it is. And I got Mm -hmm. there and I was like relatively fit. I had been training in the mountains and I thought, okay, this will be good. And went back to my hometown of Chicago and I had racing flats on. Right. And I thought racing flats was a good grip. And the, yeah. the top 10 or 12 guys had five fingers on right because you could corner it was crazy and i was like <laughs> whoa these are our thing for this you know so
1: <laughs> yeah that's funny that's a good truly a crazy
0: time and i think i think that certainly to your point i mean people maybe ran too much too soon and then certainly weren't doing enough other things to to help keep them strong um in the ways that we all you know know now we should as runners to maintain our stride and and, and core strength and all those things
1: yeah, and I think a lot of good things came out of that movement. I, I think that we became more conscious. That's why I, I do like the term um, "natural running" as a way to describe what that was about more than minimalism, because I think it, it gets more at the heart of what we're trying to do. And, the, I, agree. and I agree. I agree. I want to try to create footwear that allows people to run their whole life and to have a healthy, you know, a healthy lifestyle, the ability to move. use your body in a a natural way. But even me, you know, I mean, at that time I was running a lot in five fingers, but I also was using some shoes with cushion. You know, I wasn't exclusive to one type of footwear. And, And although I believed in the concept very much, you know, I wasn't the person who said, this is the only thing you need. There are times where You know, your body feels a little beat up, or you know, for whatever reason, you might want to have a little more protection under the foot, uh, a little more softness. You know, there. And so, when we started Topo, I wanted to take some of the things that we learned from the natural running movement, but also combine it with some things that are probably a little more conventional and that I also believe in. And so, so those things were kind of at the you know founding value set for, for Topo. Yep. We, we, did make, we did want to make shoes that allow your toes to spread and splay. I think it's really important to engage all of those muscles in the toes for balance, agility, a sense of control, all of those things. Uh, I do like shoes that are low drop. They don't have to be zero drop. You know, A lot of people, you know, have a hard time transitioning completely to zero. It puts a lot of stress on the Achilles tendon or soleus muscle, you know, might be too sore. So we wanted to have a range of drops from zero to five millimeters of heel to toe drop. So incorporating some of those principles, but, you know, not having to go all the way to bright, which right. is kind of what that minimalist movement did.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that I think certainly there are a lot of good things that came out of that movement. And uh, as, as well as the, the return to foam too, uh, that we've seen in the last, you know, 10 years or so, I think certainly some of the things you mentioned, I think certainly the more natural uh, understanding of shoe design, I think that the, the low drop, whether it's, you know, zero or four or six uh, certainly is much better than what it was, which was the standard bearer of 12 to 14, you know? Um, And I think also, you know, um, lighter shoes is good. I think you referenced that in, you know, certainly in the early two thousands, there was super heavy shoes because of all the add-ons and the overlays. And one of the things that probably changed that was, you know, certainly some of the learnings from that, that natural running movement, but also obviously new materials came out, which has been great because, you know, you could do a lot more with lighter materials and get the same Mm speed. Mm-hmm. And support. So I think I think certainly what happened after that natural running boom, what are you going to call it, at that period of time from 2006 to 2011 or 12, was that yeah everything was changing and we we and we learned a lot too. And I think that every piece of that you know born to run and the Harvard study and all that stuff certainly played a role to where we are now. Which I think now is there's a lot of good shoes out there that um, probably you know make a mo- mockery of the shoes that were in the late 90s and early 2000s. You know, but people are hopefully running healthier because of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think people are running healthier. And, uh, you know, for me personally, I still do my training. So now I don't belong to a gym. And like a lot of people can't even go to their gym today because of the pandemic. Um, you know, I work out at home and all of my workouts when I'm lifting or doing yoga course or those kinds of things, I'm, I'm barefoot. Um, so I don't have to Be barefoot to run. You know, I I use different stack heights, different drops, depending on how I feel that particular day. Uh, But I still do a lot of strength training, mobility training, barefoot, because I really believe in that, you know, trying to use and engage those muscles and that range of motion. I think it's still really vital to having a good, healthy uh, running lifestyle.
0: I absolutely agree, and i have um by default walked around my house barefoot for years you know and um it's not because I live in a in a, a carefree or, or you know um, <laughs> uh, community older it, guy? It, yeah. yeah i mean like it's it's not that we're all uh, long haired and barefoot but uh but I think that like just walking around barefoot certainly has kept my feet strong, I think that comparing some of my former uh college track athletes who were we were all maybe size 10 10 and a half some of those guys are size 11 and a half 12 partially because their arches have fallen down because they haven't maintained that strength and and to their credit you know they're wearing dress shoes they're walking on hard surfaces they're not barefoot as much and the other piece for me has been trail running you know and trail running oh yeah dynamic movements, every step is different. And you're, you're flexing and stressing different muscles much more than in road running. Um, I think that's helped as well. So those, those two things, barefoot, you know, around the house even, and then, and then trail running, uh, certainly helped me a lot. And of course I run in hundreds of different shoes. So, um, I have that variety as well, but I think, I think that, you know, that's, that's a pretty good learning for me that, yeah, I I haven't run barefoot per se much. I mean, I do strides in the grass every now and then, but I, I do think that, that foot strength and foot health, are a big part of the overall picture of, of running better. And certainly footwear comes into that.
1: Yep. Totally agree. Yeah. And saying, hearing you say strides, uh, you know, barefoot that, that is what we used to do again, back in the late seventies at the end of a track workout, our coach used to have us take our shoes off. And that's when it first kind of got to me, this whole idea and have us take our shoes off and we do 10 or 15 sets of strides across the football field. And it wasn't a, um, You know, artificial turf surface. I mean, it was bumpy and uneven. And he knew that, you know, especially come cross country season, I want your feet strong. I want your ankles strong. You know, I want you to be resistant to, you know, foot injury or turning an ankle. And, and so I always, you know, that concept kind of stayed with me through all those, all those years. And it's probably what made Five Fingers feel quite natural.
0: For sure. For sure. Um, you mentioned earlier about the craftsmanship of shoes. I I think that, I think certainly we know that, the the shoemaking business, uh, from new England largely went overseas and that was certainly tied to economic reasons. And I I know the late seventies and early eighties, it was a tough time in a lot of ways. And as, as more manufacturing went to the Pacific Rim and, and, you know, in China and such, and eventually China, um, you know that we we, we kind of lost that old school kind of connection to what was happening in New England for hundreds of years had a had a really strong uh footwear um uh, manufacturing kind of kind of community um certainly some of the, the the craftsmanship still exists but but we know now that everything is uh, certainly, uh, computer-aided design and, and, and you know, mechanized, it, it, it seems like things have changed, modernized for sure, but you still have to build a shoe, right? And so you still have to have, at some level, an understanding of how that shoe goes together and whether it's mass produced, you know, uh, seven time zones away or not. I mean, it's, it's still gotta be a shoe that makes, um, makes sense for what your original intent is. I guess, h- how has that changed in, in your history of, of the shoe industry?
1: I think I was lucky, um, to start when I did because, um, so when I started at Rockport, it was the early 1980s and we had a model shop in our facility and before any prototype or, you know, today you send, uh, a rendering to China or, you know, wherever your shoe factory might be and you get a prototype back. We used to build everything in house first. So we actually had what we call the model shop. So we would, we would turn our own lasts, we would cut our own patterns, we would build wood versions of the bottom platforms that we wanted to create. And it really, um, it forced, it, and then we would cast those into, you know, different forms of plastics or, or urethane materials so that we could have a soft, flexible, like uh shoe that we could test. So, so it forced us to, you know, be really conscious of how a shoe is made or constructed. I think a lot of people who work in the shoe industry today didn't, aren't fortunate enough to have that experience. You know, they just think you can design something on paper or, uh, on your computer, you email it off, a prototype comes back and you kind of go from there, which is all great. But, you know, there's so many things you learn when you're forced to, um kind of come through this way. You, you know, how are you going to turn that seam? How are you going to make sure that this part stays connected? You know, all these little nuances of of footwear craftsmanship that are really important. And they're not necessarily, you know, there was always this in our industry, as you know, people talk about the brown shoe business versus the athletic shoe or the white shoe business. And and the brown shoe business, you know, had so many of these really great techniques and solutions, um, and it went to everything from last making to to how things were put together to how things were designed to to last for a longer period of time. And I just feel like in the even today in the athletic footwear industry, a lot of those things can be overlooked, and while you know there's so much attention on different foam types on you know the the latest mesh design or engineered mesh or or what and all those things are great but i think i think there still needs to be a lot of attention to craftsmanship i when i talk to people who wear our shoes you know they talk about how how the fit feels on their foot and i know that you don't get that just by sending you know, a design on your computer to China, that there's a whole process to creating that, that has more to do with the craftsmanship of footwear. And I tend to agree. I, think, I really, I love.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, every now and then I'll get a, a shoe sample to test. And, and mostly we, we have a lot of good shoes out now, like I said before. And I think that certainly the 3d printing um, prototype process has probably helped that. But I also think that, uh, Every now and then I'll get a shoe and like think like wow how did they not know that this uh, the vamp on this just doesn't feel right when you flex your foot you know and like understanding a shoe in motion and things like that and or just a, a trail running shoe that just seems to roll over itself and um, has no no kind of structural stability and um, so so I am amazed still that the, there is that missing piece um, even though we've seen improvements across the board but I do think that yeah the, the, maybe the brands that are doing the best maybe have more of that craftsmanship um, built into the process than others.
1: It's funny, you know, people think of a brand like Nike. There was a reason Nike had a development facility in Exeter, New Hampshire. And I think it was because they knew they could employ a bunch of those kind of old old world shoemakers at that time and be able to pass some of that knowledge on into their company. They knew that that was important enough, um, you know, even as a a brand that was growing probably faster than any other shoe company in the world at the time. Um, So. Yeah, it's it, it's an often overlooked um characteristic that I I I always try to talk about and remind people how important it is.
0: Sure. You you did mention um <clears throat> foams and I've mentioned as well certainly the the, the notion that, that uh uh there's a revolution of foam going on with with different midsole cushionings and, and such and that now we know they can be cushioning and energetic at the same time. Um but it's more of that, too. It's, it's about how they interact with the foot in different ways. Uh, but I guess talk about maybe the new materials and kind of how it's changed um, kind of the whole process and the whole outcome of a shoe. I mean, obviously, you can make an exceptional shoe now that, that, uh, does a lot of things and feels great and, and can be resilient and stuff, you know, and again, compared to the old EVA midsoles of the seventies and eighties and nineties, and even recently, um, it, it's, it's much more of a, uh, certainly natural kind of experience for your foot. Um, but also it's just, uh, it's just so much more there, right?
1: Yeah. I think there are, you know, there are a lot of ways that shoes have really improved. I think, um, you know, when I think about how we used to cut and stitch uppers together, and then it moved from that to finding meshes where you would a print, not kind of a something between a 3D print and a screen print that you would literally print an upper on top of a mesh. Yep. And today, you know, a lot of shoes, ours included, are, are made with engineered mesh so that you're, um, you know, programming a machine to kind of say, okay, we want holes and breathability in this section, but we need a tighter, stronger weave in this section. And you can get a shoe that has a really natural feel to the upper, um, but at the same time keeps your foot secure over the platform. Um, you know, it's it, it's about trying to create an experience that's comfortable, of course, when you first put it on, but is it comfortable, you know, 18 or 20 miles into a run? And so you know, there's just so many different things that have come along that have made that experience better. The the foams that you talk about, and I think foams are really important and an important part of the um, you know, the shoemaking process, but it's it's just one part and it, it feels like that gets talked about a lot, you know, when I think about how um let's say how you know when an upper is built right and you can run 18 or 20 miles out of the box without getting a blister you know that's that's pretty important so um it's for sure it's a different world and it's going to continue to evolve it's fun to work in an industry where you know people are always bringing new ideas and creativity and um you know last year at this time everybody was talking about carbon fiber plates and and you know it now you hardly hear very much about it you know
0: it's it's kind of funny and true and part of that is i mean like talk about a perfect storm right i mean all you know obviously nike was the first to have carbon fiber plates and then hoka and a few others and then then we realized everyone was doing it but then you know all of them were supposed to be launching this year and then the worst possible year because of of the pandemic nobody's racing and nobody's trying to go after their marathon pr so all these shoes that launch with carbon fiber plates uh, are, you know, still out there, but probably not selling that well. Um, but I think maybe that'll lead to other things too. I mean, e- you know, it was going to lead to other things anyway, because people thought differently about the shoe, uh, and the shoe process of how to, how to build it. But, but it is ironic that a year ago, yeah, everything was carbon fiber. Now it's, you know, it's not that at all.
1: And it, it, it's very cool. I mean, I, first of all, I think some of the shoes are totally amazing, but it's also for a lot of people, it's going to be like trying to drive a formula one car to work. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily going to be the shoe that is really a solution for everybody. There are a lot of people that are going to find that shoe to be stiff or hard or unnatural feeling, you know, and, and, you know, if you're running a two hour marathon or sub two hour marathon, you know, that might be exactly the perfect tool that you need, but, um, but it just depends on, you know, and that's one of the things that I think has also really evolved in our industry is how there's such a wide array of product that are available, depending on what kind of experience you need. You mentioned trail running, you know. I mean, I was involved with the Leadville Trail 100 back in the early '90s when, you know, it used to take three months for the race to fill up. Right, and right. And today, I think it fills up in what. Thirty minutes, or you know, three hours, or something like that.
0: Yep, of the span of a Saturday morning in December when the lottery happens.
1: But it, you know, it it shows you that you know how much running has evolved, and that's a really cool thing. And and for me, like you said, you're lucky to live in Boulder because you have so many trails accessible. But trail running is one of the things that for people who have been runners for thirty or forty years you know, it makes running better. I, I I know of no other way to say it, you know, it's because you're using your body in a different way. It's not just out, you know, going fast or kind of falling into the zone on a road run. You're really having to pay attention. You're having to be fully engaged. You're aware of how your foot is landing or your strike or your stride is going to have to alter slightly depending on the terrain or conditions or what you're coming up against how it's the side hill is going to affect you all of that
0: yep no i agree and i think that uh, you mentioned how the runners have changed i think certainly you know when the when the 70s running boom <clears> hit it <throat> was all about uh you know running a marathon uh, certainly running a marathon fast initially then then you know then okay just finish a marathon and then we've evolved continually to so now it's like running is whatever you want it to be, right? And we've mentioned a lot of mm-hmm. things, trail running and road running, and certainly marathons and half marathons are still a thing, but also people that go to the gym or go to yoga or whatever else. And so people are definitely looking for different things out of their shoes and also to be versatile enough to, to still be able to run in it. So that, I think that's certainly led to you know, recent trends of, of some of the models that have come out as well.
1: It's an interesting time, you know, for all the horrible things of this pandemic. And it's, you know, created a lot of suffering and pain for a lot of people. One of the good things that has come out of this, if that's possible, is that probably more people have more time for running, hiking, walking, you know, some form of fitness. Um, And they are, you know, probably going to be habits that they will carry on after this pandemic passes. And, um, you know, I think it's brought a lot of people into the world of running, hiking. Uh, walking, you know, just getting outside and moving your body, and h- how great that is, you know that it, you know I, I really just want to be involved in an industry that helps people get healthier, stronger, feel better about themselves I mean those that's that's the reason to get up in the morning you know that's what makes this fun is that you know that you're delivering an experience like that or helping to deliver something that can make that possible for people. And when absolutely. they discover it and they can and it can be something to carry their whole life that's so cool, it's so rewarding
0: absolutely i i couldn't agree more i do, i do think during this this pandemic yeah certainly as, as rough as it's been for so many people in so many ways i think that um kind of a return to almost like primal human um activities um or or habits has been great i mean for me i i've I've learned to appreciate much more making my own food you know i, I didn't i didn't ever go out too much but it's certainly either going out or or you know finding an easy processed food was 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 habit and now i'm like i love to make whether it's a salad or sandwich or a meal right and like but also yeah. i think for, for, for running it's the same thing it's like it's the understanding of of you know certainly for the last several months people have had more time to to move their body right but also i think also more of a focus to understand yeah, that, that they can't just watch the headlines and and more bad news all the time. They have to get out and exercise their mind too. And I think certainly running does that as well. So I think both of those things. I agree that hopefully we'll have long term effects uh, of a new type of fitness boom. You know, and I know I know that the bike industry is booming too, and that's great. I think that mm-hmm. the notion that people um, you know don't need a reason, don't need a race, don't need anything. They just, all they need is, need is like a moment to say, yeah, I want to go do this, and that's I think what's, what's happening right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That's great, Um, and maybe we'll we'll just wrap up with one more thing here. But like I think, certainly uh, as people kind of discover kind of how they move, certainly Topo is in a good place to um, kind of certainly offer um, customers a a wide variety of things. But but if I were to ask you, you know, uh, what's what's the prototypical customer uh, or ideal customer for um, for Topo shoes? What would you What would you say?
1: Well, I think um, we have a couple different people that come to the brand. So some people. You know, some people in their running experiences are very brand loyal and it's going to be hard to for a brand like Topo to capture a customer who, you know, for whatever reason, somebody says, I'm a Saucony person or I'm a New Balance gal or, you know, whatever their brand is. And so some people are so uh, locked in, but a lot of times newer customers are more open. And more open to trying different brands, or more open to trying different solutions. A lot of times, people come to Topo, frankly, because they get injured or they get hurt. Um, we get a lot of medical referrals, is how we end up getting, because um, a lot of, you know, podiatrists, foot surgeons um, know that Topo is a is a healthy alternative. You know, it allows your body to work in a natural way, but still gives you some level of protect, of protection. Um, You know, in some cases we have some shoes that what we have called light guidance, you know, we don't put a whole lot of um, structure and, and heavy support into our shoes, but some people need a little bit of light guidance to kind of get them on the right path. So, you know, we do see people who come to the brand because they've been injured or maybe they've had a less than satisfying experience. Um, so those are, those are probably two of the, the groups. I think the other thing we were talking about trail running before is, so trail running is about half of our business. And I I think a lot of, and you know, from somebody who's, you know, pretty deep in the industry, it probably only represents maybe 10% of sales, maybe less, um, And so a lot of people who are trail runners also are constantly looking for new solutions, new ideas. Um, And so I think we capture a lot of those people there, and then they end up discovering our road shoes as well. And and our shoes have a, a fairly consistent feel. It is that roomy toe box that you feel not overly so. But if you're a traditional medium width, there's a little extra room in the toes for your toes to spread and splay naturally, engaging all those muscles. But I wanted the shoe to fit snug through the waist and secure in the heel so that you would feel more nimble, more agile. Sometimes when you have a wider, fuller fitting shoe, it can feel a little sloppy on the foot. You don't feel as nimble, agile, athletic. And so I wanted to combine that sensation. And then by putting the low drop in, doesn't have to be zero. Obviously, we make some zero drop shoes, but we make shoes of 3 millimeters of heel to toe drop or 5 millimeters of heel to toe drop. You can find that right fit for the way you your body works, and it may work differently when you're speed training or racing than it does when you're out for your, you know, Sunday long run. And so, you know, we try to take all of that into consideration So it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, you know, trying to deliver this, a lot of these feelings that uh, allow your body to move and work in a natural way, but still using the footwear as a tool that makes the experience comfortable and allows you to do it your whole life.
0: Right. And I, I think, I think too, I mean, I've been a proponent of always because of my background and understanding footwear, like the same way you did was you've got to find the the, the shoe that fits you and your stride and your type of running, all those things. And I think that's the key ultimately to, to, to those, you know, to, that, to that magic that happens. And I will say I've been running a bit in the, the ultra fly three. I love that. And um, I do want to uh, test out the, the mountain Racer soon. So um, certainly I, I love what you guys have been doing. And uh, I think it's, it's exciting to watch a brand. Uh, start from, from scratch, obviously, which is no easy thing to to being a success.
1: Well, thanks. We still have a long way to go in it. I love the process. You know, Brian, I like the feedback. I'm I'm grateful when people are candid with their feedback and can tell us, you know, I'm not so sure I like this part of the experience. And everybody's different. You know, we know that our shoes aren't going to work for everyone. But I, I like learning and continuing to try to incorporate that information feedback and solve problems so that we can we can deliver a satisfying experience for as many people as possible
0: well you've done a great job so far so i appreciate very much the conversation Uh, i've been talking here with tony post the ceo and founder of of, uh, topo athletic and uh i would encourage everyone to go try a pair of topo shoes and uh check them out um tony thank you very much
1: thanks brian enjoyed it
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Kixology Podcast. Thanks very much to Tony Post of Topo Athletic for the engaging conversation. Look for some of his brand's new models on Instagram and at topoathletic.com. Please tune in each week as I talk about all things running shoes, from breakthrough innovations to historic fails to bestsellers of the past and the present. Plus, a look at what's coming in the future. Also, be sure to pick up a copy of my book, Kixology, The Hype, Science, Culture, and Cool of Running Shoes at bellopress.com and on Amazon. See you next time.